At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. U.S. Senate was fighting over how to handle allegations against a Supreme Court nominee here in Georgia. We had a court fight on paper, paper ballots, that is. Meanwhile, the people on the November ballot for governor, which won't be on paper, tried to figure out which messages will convince voters who haven't made up their minds already. In Atlanta, the gulch will stay the gulch, at least for now, while some state lawmakers go public with their fears that the nuclear power plant expansion has run into a gulch of its own. It's all on the buffet for a political breakfast. Welcome, I'm Dennis O'Hare, and joining us again, Brian Robinson, a Republican strategist and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal, and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson, who's a former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Hey guys, welcome back. Good to be back. So good to be here, Dennis. Let's start with what's on paper or not. Paper ballots. Atlanta federal judge Amy Totenberg ruled the state can go ahead with its current election machines for the 2018 elections denying a request for an injunction which would have set up possibly a paper trail system in a hurry. But she did blast state officials who, as she put it, had buried their heads in the sand by not changing a system she found vulnerable to hacking. Brian, I'll start with you. Democrats immediately pounced on this saying, okay, Brian Kemp, this is on you. The judge made the right ruling here. We don't have the time to do this conversion. I think everybody, including Brian Kemp, thinks that we need to have a paper trail for our voting system. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of those things. Our systems are now, I think, close to two decades old. Think about the technology that you own that is two decades old, and it is probably zero things. So this is way, way behind the times. And we do need to update them. I do think they probably got caught like midway through their lives through the Great Recession when we weren't making these sort of investments on things that weren't immediately needed. But look, we have the money. This is this needs to be a priority for the next Secretary of State. It needs to get done. Now, I don't understand how this is vulnerable to hacking because our machines are not directly hooked up to the Internet. It, it, there's all these complicated ways to do it. I, I get that. It doesn't seem very likely to me. I don't worry about the integrity of our election this year. But yes, let's all agree we need to get this fixed next year. Casey Cagle, for whom you worked during the primary, I did. went after Secretary of State Brian Kemp on the general issue of election security. Is this one for which the Democrats said, thank you, Casey Cagle, very much. You've given us a template for how to go after Brian Kemp. Well, you know, Secretary of State Kemp thanked Casey Cagle at the Unity Rally after the primary for thoroughly vetting him in the, in the <laughs> primary. And that's, look, that's what primaries do. And 
at the end of the day, the people of Georgia, Republican voters, decided they were comfortable and proud of Brian Kemp's record, and that's why he's the nominee. Theron, over to you. This goes back much farther than Secretary of State Kemp. I'm old enough to remember when these systems were put in place by a Democratic Secretary of State who ended up running for governor, Kathy Cox. And even then, when it was being talked about before it was implemented, advocates were saying, we need a paper trail. And that idea was rejected then. So do Democrats have any legs to stand on in saying, oh, Brian Kemp, you've, uh, you've fallen down on the job here? Well, you remember when Secretary of State Kathy Cox was running, this is something that Mark Taylor also mm-hmm. pointed out against her. And so I think that— Mark you, Taylor, her Democratic opponent in the primary, who beat her? So let's take partisanship out of the, uh, out of the equation here because you've had Democratic primary opponents attack each other on this issue. You've seen in a Republican primary between Casey Cagle— and Brian Kemp, Casey Cagle, and Brian, they did a good job of really, quite frankly, uh, getting it all out there for Kemp. So it's not really so much new news. But let's talk about the ruling. What this judge just basically said was, because there's literally an election right around the corner, I'm not going to rule that we do paper ballots this time. Brian Kemp may have won this lawsuit, but this is still a problem that happened under Kathy Cox's Mm -hmm. watch. But also, he's had 12 years to basically come up with a viable solution to which the judge said is a vulnerability problem. So basically, this lawsuit continues, and this was a small injunction victory for Brian Kemp and the Republicans, but this is still a vulnerability problem that he has had 12 years to solve, and he hasn't done it. And so now what this does for Stacey Abrams, it creates this opportunity for her to do something that we're hearing all across the country, and that is, Are our votes being counted accurately and fairly? It continues to basically uh, convey this mistrust in the voting system. And even Donald Trump, Brian's favorite president, talked about voter irregularities during this former, uh, during this past presidential election year. So, look, is it something that Democrats need to talk about more than 72 hours? No. But is it something that I think that Stacey Abrams and Democrats can say, hey, look, this is what we've gotten under Republican leadership and the Secretary of State's office, and this guy, will he ignore another problem if he becomes governor? I think that's something that she can amplify in her campaign. Brian, it also opens up the greater issue that we're seeing on both sides. As they try to figure out what message is going to reach those key voters we need to get over the top in a close election, they're attacking each other on a number of fronts, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams are, and one of them is the issue of competence. Stacey Abrams going after Brian Kemp, for instance, on a case involving a massage parlor, which his office had overseen in one of the many departments that the Secretary of State's office oversees. His outside allies are going after her for, as they put it, walking on a vote on a sex trafficking bill. She has replied she has voted for many bills to crack down on sex trafficking. Is the competence issue one that gets a wedge for either side at this point? That was the angle taken by Casey Cagle, Kemp's primary opponent, throughout the entire summer. And at the end of the day, that's not what voters were determining their preference on. It's going to be different in a general election. It's a a different audience than what you have in a primary. But what both candidates are trying to do is to define the other before the other can define them. So I asked a a class of students, I was with Theron a few weeks ago speaking at the University of Georgia, and I asked those students, how is Brian Kemp defining Stacey Abrams? And they knew. 
too extreme for Georgia. Mm-hmm. And Radical, I said, socialist, that kind of thing, yes. Too extreme for Georgia. It You can make it into a hashtag. It's memorable. It's short. And you can put all of the attacks on her under that umbrella and make it a very effective message that penetrates. I then asked the students, how was she trying to define him? And nobody knew. And I said, ha-ha, I don't know either. And that's a problem for Stacey Abrams. Brian Kemp is defining her better than she is defining him, even though she has a significant financial advantage to use against him. So I think that I was actually in that same classroom. I don't think that I was there when Brian posed his particular question. But I would tell you from the makeup of these wonderful scholars at the University of Georgia, Grady School of Journalism, uh, I would say from the makeup of the room racially, um, that there was really only uh, maybe two or three people in there who looked like me. Uh, I, I would say you probably had a few John Ossoff uh, supporters in there, but the rest were probably grandchildren or children of card-carrying Republicans. And so I think that, that while Brian is trying to make the point that a lot of millennials who are at an institution to get their education is probably not paying attention closely to what Stacey Abrams has spent millions of dollars labeling Brian Kemp, uh, as a person who basically sort of accusing him as a- allowing a crime to happen with this massage parlor uh, um, uh, issue. She's also saying that this gentleman is the only candidate for governor right now who's running while he's in an active civil litigation suit. I- and I can give you one more, Brian. I think the other thing that when I ask my friends, my people who I associate with about Brian Kemp, uh, it's two things that I get. They say he's got this beautiful wife with these beautiful daughters on TV, but they also say, oh, this is the guy who basically wanted to go around the state of Georgia and round up illegals and also pointed a gun at the poor innocent you know, young man who was maybe or maybe not trying to date his daughter. So I think there's enough money that's been spent there. But the other thing that I think that this injunction in this lawsuit around voter irregularities and, and the uh, denial of a request to have a paper ballot it also, I think, is going to bring up some things that we know about Brian Kemp. I mean, let's not forget the fact, Dennis, this gentleman actually purged, you know, uh, almost, you know, 300,000 voters off the voter file. This is the According same. According to state law, uh, abiding by state law. And then and then also, Brian and I talked about this. Let's go back on the podcast that this is the same guy as Secretary of State who turned over personal data, Social Security numbers, date of birth, basically because of, of a person in his office don't know how to do their job under his watch. And so he put all of us at risk by allowing this information to be out there. So I will say this. I think this notion that they have spent a lot of money, they put this this articulate white woman on TV and saying that Stacey Abrams is too extreme for Georgia, I think if you really looked under the word extreme or extremist in this race, Brian Kemp's picture is right there, and it's bigger. It's a big 8 by 11 picture right beside the world. Now, Stacey Abrams may have a 5 by 7 but <laughs> when you look at the extreme rhetoric and polarizing messaging that's coming out of both their campaigns, I think that the Kemp campaign is a little bit more extreme than the Abrams campaign. And on that point, both of them, Brian, are trying to tie themselves to your old boss, Governor Nathan Deal. Stacey Abrams saying she worked with him on criminal justice reform. Brian Kemp saying he worked with the governor to help bring more business to Georgia, etc. The governor, while he's hosting a fundraiser for Brian Kemp, isn't exactly hitting the campaign trail for him. And he asked both candidates to get more specific on education. 
there's a reason why both are tying themselves to Nathan Deal, and that's because he by far is the most popular politician in the state. The vast majority of Georgians, whether they are Republican, Democrat, whatever their race, think that Georgia is moving in the right direction, even though many of those folks might think that the country isn't moving in the right direction. People feel very good about what's happening here at home. We're number one state for business. Governor Deal is seen as pragmatic and reasonable and has brought prosperity and good government uh, to the state. What does it say, though, that Governor Deal hasn't exactly, while he's certainly talked nicely about Secretary Kemp, he hasn't exactly revved up the campaign machinery for him? He's available to Brian Kemp, and he's actually doing fundraisers for Brian Kemp yep. all week. Uh, I was talking with the governor's chief of staff two nights ago about putting out pro-Kemp tweets. He and I were both doing that. So they are on, on Team Kemp. They are fighting for a, a Kemp victory, and they are actually a very important part of how the Republicans keep the governor's mansion because you know, in a primary – Donald Trump is the king. I mean, he is the kingmaker. I mean, he tweeted in favor of Brian mm -hmm. Kemp, and the election was over at that very minute. But statewide, and I don't, I don't mean to give Theron any talking points here, but statewide, uh, President Trump has a, is an eleven point unfavorable rating, meaning his unfavorables are eleven points higher than his favorables, whereas. Governor Deals are 25% favorable. Uh, Johnny Addison's next with 18 to give you some perspectives, uh, but no one else comes anywhere close. And so tying your star to Nathan Deal is a really good strategy. I think Brian Kemp should continue to do that. He needs to say that I'm going to keep Georgia on the course that Governor Deal has set. Real quickly, uh, I did see one of the tweets from Chris Riley, and I don't think uh, attacking President Carter as a pro-Kemp tweet. I think that was more of a reminder to say, hey, you tried to beat us four years ago, President Carter, when you came out and endorsed Michelle Nunn and, and got involved in a race while my, you know, my mm -hmm. governor was on the ballot. Yeah. Um, and but, of course, there was Jason Carter, right, the president's it, grandson, who was running against Governor Deal. Correct. So so if we know anything about the Deal administration, I'm only uh, saying what Chris Riley has said publicly is that when you come for us, we will be forced to respond. So I think that was more of a personal uh, response. But this is what I will say. This is a challenge for Democrats, not only in Georgia, but nationally. What Democrats are really running against right now is not so much the people who are actually on the ballot. It's not even Trump. It's actually the economy. And there are some Democrats and independent voters out there and moderates that may say, hey, I think Trump is unhinged. I think Brian Kemp is maybe extreme. But when I go look at my bank account, my 401k, I'm working. I think that's something that the Abrams campaign is sort of going up. I mean, it's an uphill battle. She's got to come back with a Georgia-specific message to combat Governor Deal, who I agree, and we've said on this on this show, is the person who I think is ultimately going to have to bail Kemp out. And then Stacey Abrams, as anyone who knows her can tell you, is perhaps unsurpassed at putting out plans, detailed plans. She's done it on criminal justice reform. She's done it on health care. There are all these plans, and certainly economic development would, would, would be one of those as well. But will voters read those plans and actually pay attention to so, them? So one of the things that Stacey Abrams did this week, and I was so proud of her, and, and I think she has to do it when she's on these stations. So she always gets this question about, hey, you got this poll, you're tied, you know, this actually is feasible now, that there's viability. You can actually possibly depending on the poll, become governor. But what she's doing now, Dennis, which I think is very smart, she's taking this earned media opportunity to say, hey, go to my website, guys, and read my plans. Like, she'll say, hey, you know, they'll hashtag it with something that is kind of catchy. If this election was about who had the best plans 
and who actually is, I think, the most prepared to be governor, Stacey Abrams definitely, you know, leads that that category. The problem is, is that our media, right? The media don't, they don't want to highlight that. They don't want to talk about these plans because they know that Brian Kemp is very weak in that, in that category. Uh, and he doesn't really have plans that he can either verbalize or articulate when he's in front of people. And it's definitely probably not on his website. And so in, instead, Dennis, and one of the frustrating things, frustrating things I'm sure that Abrams campaigns is frustrated with is that they can't get it covered because the only thing that the AJC and all these other you know, media outlets want to cover is which candidate is saying the worst thing about one another, right? And now this whole thing about you know, per diems and all that stuff. I mean, I guarantee you, we compare Democratic per diems to these Republicans. I mean, these, these, these some wild boys at the Capitol. Quick, as quick, far as what, quick nobody, explanation here. No, nobody had more per diems than Stacey Abrams, so that the comparison is not a good one for Democrats. Quick quick explanation here. for Per diems are daily expenses that lawmakers can recoup when they're doing business of lawmaking, especially outside of the session. And Stacey Abrams, for several years, had more of those expense claims than anybody else at the legislature, she was either right at the top or near the top for several years. Go ahead, Brian. And in fact, taking home more annually in per diems than she did in, in legislative salary. So it just gives you some perspective for how much she was drawing down. But it's not illegal and it's not unethical. Let's make sure we get that in for our listeners. This is something that every legislator had the opportunity to do. She did it. It was above board. It wasn't unethical. It wasn't illegal. So again, Republicans have done a good job to make it, where if a Democrat does anything with state dollars, they become criminal and un-American. This is not the case in this in this particular instance. What Theron said is accurate, that the media is not interested in policy. You can put out news releases all day. Uh, you know, Greg Bluestein of the AJC will do some, like he did report on Kemp's school safety plan that was rolled out this week, which is a hot topic, something that parents are very concerned about. Uh, it is one of the pressing issues with all of the school shootings and, and other mass uh, casualties incidents. But what Theron also pointed out was that Stacey Abrams got all these plans and Brad Kemp doesn't. Well, that pretty much describes the 2016 presidential election, too, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton had 70 policy proposals on her website that were read by one person. It was the person who wrote them, whoever that guy was, that poor sap. And... That was it. And she was never able to drive a coherent, singular message, whereas Donald Trump did not have 70 policy proposals on his website, but he had one message that everyone knew, make America great again. Yeah, but the difference there is this. And so so Brian does a really good job of uh, – Thank you. I've heard him tell that, that joke um, numerous of times. Actually, it's pretty good. But, but here, here's, here's the difference, Dennis. Yes, it did not work for Hillary Clinton because she's going to go down his history as the most hated – presidential candidate ever to run for president of the United States of America. The difference is now you it's flipped. You have a president who we saw now what we got because he had no plan. So that means that he has not been able to govern. The difference here is, is that I think voters, many of these voters who Brian and I talked to, who do not like the tone and don't like the rhetoric that's come out of Washington that they see much in Brian Kemp. And a lot of folks still, I was at Peachtree Golf Club yesterday and not a place where a lot of people of color get a chance to to go. They actually, to this day, do not have a African-American member or a Jewish member of the club. So I'm not bashing them. I just thought that was really interesting in 2018. But they let me, a, a little poor country black boy from Athens, <laughs> go out and play 18 holes of golf. But while I was there, Dennis, <laughs> I was with... talks about white privilege. Yeah, yes. I was there, and I had a conversation with some of the most elite 
Republican leaders in our city, in our state. And I asked him one fundamental question. Not who you were going to vote for, because clearly they knew who I was going to vote for. Um, but I said, what do you think about what's going on with Donald Trump? And what do you think about what's going on in this governor's race? And the reoccurring theme I heard, while I think they will vote for Kemp, is that they're not proud. They say, you know what, this is just now, you know, you, you, this whole issue around tariffs and what we got going on. I mean, these are business-minded guys. We're just not happy. We wish things could be better, you know, less polarizing. And I think that's something that the Abrams campaign may be able to capitalize on. And a small self-serving moment here we will point out, Brian, that certainly the candidates' plans have been vetted here on 90.1 WABEs during the interviews that I did with all the candidates on Morning Edition. I actually looked at the plans and asked them about them, and the newsroom continues to do that. We're going to take a break real quickly here, and we'll be right back with more Political Breakfast. Stay with us. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We are back with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Thanks for hanging with us and enjoying a political breakfast. Let's switch to the city very quickly. Theron, the Gulch. Mayor Bottoms could not muster enough city council votes to approve the $1.75 billion in tax breaks for this proposed $5 billion multi-use development that would cover about 40 acres or so. Opponents argued... It's not just the tax breaks that are the problem, but the city would have no control over, the developer would have way too much control over what happened in the little mini city. Where does Mayor Bottoms go from here? Because she was on council. Mayor Reed took heat from council members for, in their view, not keeping them in the loop. And now Mayor Bottoms was facing the same kind of criticism. So this is a very complicated project that actually will do a lot of good for the city. And the reason it's complicated is because it's sort of uh, unprecedented. We've never really sort of had a deal that required so much input from the state and mm -hmm. from the city and the collaboration. And Governor Deal is very much behind this one. I'm getting there. So, you know, one of the things that Mayor Reed definitely gets credit for is fostering a good working relationship with Governor Deal and his chief of staff and his, his administration. And so what you've seen is, is that, Governor Deal has come out publicly and said this is a good deal. His chief of staff has not only come out and said that it's a good deal, he's actually gone to city council and really answered a lot of these questions that they had. But what's really also going on here is that I want to change the narrative. The sponsor of this ordinance is Cleta Winslow, who represents District 4 in the city of Atlanta. Now, the mayor got involved because it was a continuation of what Mayor Reed had sort of started. And so this has been an ongoing project for a long time. The reason you didn't see a vote, and I think that the mayor did a really good job articulating her statement. I'm sure you read it, Dennis. But basically mm -hmm. what she said in, in, to sort of in a synopsis was that she's still very committed to this project, you know, upwards to almost $50 million in one year for affordable housing, probably $200 million over of the life of the, um, of the deal. And she said, but I've listened and I've heard the questions 
And I've heard the community say that they want more time and they want more clarity. But she also put it back on the council members to say, hey, I hope you're not trying to play political football here. I hope many of you on the council who are aspiring for higher office one day is not using this as an opportunity to show that you can sort of provide some resistance to this administration. So I thought that it was a very mature, calculated response to this issue. But I think ultimately the council members have the right to represent their constituents and to ask questions so they can go back to their districts and explain it. But I do think that uh, other business leaders have got to step up and help this mayor because it's not just a city of Atlanta mayor at Bottoms Project. There's a lot of different organizations mm-hmm. that are involved. Norfolk Southern, in fact, has made selling its piece of the gulch a condition of perhaps locating its headquarters elsewhere in Atlanta. This is not a direct tie-in, right. but if this sale doesn't happen, they'll have to find some other way to sell the property if they want to locate here. Right. And so when you have this tremendous economic development opportunity and this opportunity to create and bring more jobs to our city and to have upwards to almost 200-plus affordable units that can actually grow from that number, I think that's the message that the mayor is uh, continuing to promote. So listen. Council members, they have a right. They have a right to voice their concerns. They have a right to uh, ask questions. I think that what the mayor did, she put a reset on it, and I think you're going to see it come up here pretty soon. Real quickly, though, $1.75 billion in tax breaks is a lot for any council member who may have immediate needs in his or her district to swallow. Yeah, and listen, you know, we always try to give our uh, listeners sort of inside baseball when it comes to the city and state and federal politics. This is also a lot of posturing going on. There's going to have to be some negotiating. And I want to be clear, it's going to be ethical. It's not going to be anything that's not going to be, um, you know, uh, corrupt or, you know, Brian is always quick to say, you know, it's not above board um, or anything. But I think that this allows the council members to say, hey, okay, great, Gulch is wonderful, but let's talk about some economic development opportunities in my district as well. That is a major thoroughfare in the city that has been underdeveloped and underused for And forever. almost underground. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, but, it, but it's in a prime location, and it is a chance to take what is basically an eyesore uh, and, and turn it into something that's going to be really uh, attractive for the city. I'm so glad the state's getting involved and mm-hmm. in, in doing their part. To but see the this devil is in the details, is it not? Oh, it always is. Yeah, and there is, to, to Theron's point, there is much room for corruption in such a large, uh, such a large uh, project. But look, we have transformed the face of Midtown and Downtown Atlanta over the last 20 years. This is just another element of it, another step in the right direction. This is going to continue to be a premier city, the capital of the Southeast, and it's because we do stuff like this because we're forward-looking. But there will be more negotiations. The deal is not dead. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely going to be some negotiations. I think you're going to see uh, more questions come up. And I think the other thing that you're going to see is that the mayor's having a town hall meeting uh, this week where she's going to open up City Hall and allow all of the council members and their constituents and then even have maybe a presentation from some proponents of the bill and actually give an opportunity for folks to ask questions. So I think this is a different approach, different tone, different posture than what we've seen previously. From the Gulch to Plant Vogel, a group of lawmakers, including Jan Jones, the House Speaker Pro Tem, Butch Miller, a top leader in the Senate, and many committee chairs sent a letter to Georgia Power Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia and Oglethorpe Power 
asking for a spending cap now on the Vogel project before moving forward with upcoming votes by those three utility partners to continue work on the project. This because Georgia Power again said it's going to cost another $2.3 billion. These are not backbench Democrats, Brian, sending this letter to these utilities. These are Republican leaders in the legislature. This is a change. What brought this on? Well, anytime you have the reintroduction of a major technology, which is nuclear power, we haven't built one of these in 30 years in this country, there's going to be some hiccups and some setbacks, and certainly we've seen those. But this, These were the same hiccups and setbacks that plagued Vogel 1 and 2 cost overruns that wildly exceeded anything that ever anybody predicted. And years later, they're the same ones. Yeah, and there does need to be uh, some sort of pact with the public and with taxpayers and ratepayers about how far we go with this if costs keep escalating. But that said, this is a green, renewable, non-carbon-emitting source of power that's going to serve the state for two generations. And we are so far into this investment at this juncture, it would make no sense to, to pull out. Is that then what the governor is saying to these Republican lawmakers, or is it because they are feeling heat from ratepayers who are saying, look, if we go forward, we're simply throwing good money after bad? I think they probably are hearing from some constituency groups. Now, that's why I think there needs to be an ongoing discussion with the public. I, there's uh, This is a complicated issue. People need to understand and be given a, a, a reasonable reason why costs keep going up. But Georgia Power has been a good steward of this since they took it over from the former uh, yeah, project. Toshiba was the parent firm of Westinghouse, which went bankrupt. And it's a long story, but now it's on in Georgia Power. But one of those hiccups and setbacks. And But since Georgia Power has been in control of it, it, it has been hitting its deadlines. It has been been back on track. And so, look, we all, we all are going to benefit if this succeeds. But there, I think what these legislators are asking for is perfectly understandable. Theron, will this be the threshold at which voters look at the Public Service Commission races, two of them that are on the ballot now, and say, oh, there's a connection here? Or is the plant Vogel thing and the fact that it is ultimately regulated by state elected officials something that voters don't make the connection with yet? Well, let me be fully disclosed. I have the pleasure of representing Southern Company, so I'm obviously biased to this project. <laughs> but with that being said, I think Brian did a really good job of really, Dennis, articulating that this is a project that's going to be ongoing, that's actually going to save the ratepayers hundreds of millions of dollars over time. So it's a long-term project with sort of a short-term uh, feeling of saying that, you know, we're spending too much money. And look, these legislators, Republicans, I think that it's, it was sort of, to me, if you look at the list of folks who actually proposed this sort of cap, uh, I think it was very sort of politically motivated because a lot of these districts and where they represent uh, and areas are, are, are places that, you know, that we look at the data and they actually want this project to happen. I think that Governor Deal has come out and the PSC, let's not forget, Dennis, voted unanimously to continue this project because they see the long-term vision. Now, I'm aware some folks have probably, you know, mm -hmm. reached out to you and there is this sort of small little outrage uh, against the amount of spending that I believe is justified. But do I think it's going to be 
the uh, make or break issue in this PSC races? No, but I do think that the people are going to have an opportunity who are running to really make people pay attention to these races because many times they're so far down the ballot where folks are not really uh, paying that close attention. And so I think that Southern Company and Georgia Power, uh, as Brian said, has been a good steward to this state. And this is a long-term project that ultimately is going to save ratepayers and consumers a lot of money. And it's a way of us getting some clean energy and having, you know, a, a sort of forward-thinking state that continues to try to make sure that we do what's best for the, for the people. Quick final musical thought on the way out. The NFL is denying that a decision has been made about who's going to be the halftime show in the Super Bowl coming up here in Atlanta. But the word is it's Maroon 5. And the backlash here in Atlanta has already started because Atlanta is home to mega stars like T.I. and Ludacris and Outkast and Usher to say nothing of Sugarland, Zach Brown Band and John Mayer, among R-E-M. others. R.E.M. Yeah, that would be something if they could get them all back together. Yeah, I'm from Athens. I like R.E.M. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm outraged. I am. Brian is shocked because he knows I defend the NFL. Look, Maroon 5, I probably know one of their songs. Uh, I had heard a rumor that Drake was going to perform mm-hmm. maybe at one of the sessions. But, you know, this is Atlanta. Mm-hmm. This is not Minneapolis. This is not Houston. You know, this is Atlanta, the the place where... So many musical talents not only have made their careers here, but they reside here. I mean, we are the, you know, we invented the term Dirty South. We are, we have produced more Emmy and Grammy winning artists than anybody else in the country. And so I think that with the countless amount of talents and acts that we have in this state, that we can find somebody here to be the halftime performer. Nothing against these Maroon 5 guys. You know, Mm -hmm. my fiance is a big fan of them. Uh, I hear her playing the songs every now and then, but, you know, I just have never, I just don't think that uh, we can bring them into Atlanta. But is the Super Bowl about, is the halftime show about the local talent, or is it about somebody who's worldwide because this is a worldwide event? I mean, I'll give you worldwide people. I mean, I'll, yep. you don't get any bigger than Outkast. You don't yep. get any bigger than CeeLo Green. I mean, I've seen Brian and some of his white friends dancing too crazy. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, we have enough R- REM. I mean, how bigger do you get than a REM, you know, as far as a world appeal? So I can give you five or six more that I think could um, meet that, that standard. You're right. It, they have not gone for local color in their Super Bowl locations and getting yeah, local people. So in, it's, it's in not other like cities, they've got the Rolling Stones and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bruce Springsteen and on and on. Here's my commentary on it. I don't disagree with anything y'all have said. We obviously are a home to tremendous talent in the country western sphere, in the uh, R&B sphere, uh, rap. I mean, obviously, some of the biggest names in the business are from here and li- live here day to day. Elton John. Elton John. Yeah, when you say Ludacris and Elton John, that'd be quite a duo. Here's the thing. Here's my my overriding commentary on it is nothing elicits more hate than the Super Bowl halftime performer. (laughs) Year after year, it is the biggest source of Twitter outrage and and weeks of of commentary afterwards. I don't know why people care so much about the halftime show. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Joining me today again, Republican strategist Brian Robinson, a former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal, and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson, former National Southern Regional Director of the Obama 2012 campaign. Guys, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Go Tiger.
And if you like this show, subscribe, and you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to rate us. That's a good way to make sure other people can find us. We'll be back in your feed and in your head real soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.